Jamming Cacophony tells you you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, where three lifelong Doctor Who fans, and I will introduce them to you shortly, discuss, enthuse, and occasionally criticise a trio of products related to our favourite show. That might be televised adventures, both classic and recent. It could be spin-off novels, books about the show, biographies, magazines, DVD releases, basically anything that gives us the excuse to talk about Doctor Who. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you like us, leave a review. If you don't like us, do not leave a review. Follow us on Twitter at the Power of Three Pod. That's three as a number, Power of Three Pod. We also have a Facebook page where you can leave comments, suggestions, and of course, listen to episodes of this podcast. I will now introduce you to my two co-conspirators. Davy, say hello. Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm David, and you can you can find my surname in the the episode titles of Three Doctor Who Stories. That is the most tragic sentence I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. <laughs> Kenny, oh, I don't, I don't doubt it. Kenny, say hello. Hello, I'm Kenny, and I've got the same surname as two Doctor Who companions. Two Doctor Who companions? Oh, yes, two. Oh, yeah, yeah. One is a journalist, and one yeah. is a mechanic. Mechanic. So if you need your, your typewriter repairing, Kenny's your man. <laughs> uh, a typewriter. Yeah, we're right up to date. You're the third of three Right, we are um, going to talk about three particular uh, Doctor Who products or adventures uh, in this episode. We've been talking about how we connect these three things or whether they're just completely random. And we've settled, at least for the time being, on a notion that there should be some kind of connection among the, the issues that we talk about. So for this episode, we're going to be looking at three televised adventures Starting with this one. What are we going to do? It is the Doctor. I know it is. I think. It's not only his face that's changed. It doesn't even act like him. Come on, it's time we sorted this out. Now, what's the game? Ah! The Crusades. From Saladin. The Doctor was a great collector, wasn't he? But you're the Doctor. Oh, I don't look like him. Who are we? Don't you know? Now look, the Doctor always wore this, so if you're him, it should fit now, shouldn't it? There, that settles it. I'd like to see a butterfly fit into a chrysalis case after it spread its wings. Then you did change. Life depends on change and renewal. Davy, can you take a look at TARDISFANDOM.COM and tell us what it says about the power of the Daleks? Certainly, Tom. Um, the Power of the Daleks was the third serial of Series 4 of Doctor Who. It was the first post-regeneration story in the show's history. Um, while all six episodes are missing from the BBC archives as of 2019, an animated reconstruction based on the surviving audio and video was released on the BBC store on the 50th anniversary of the series' original airing, um, the 5th of November 2016. Further, uh, a version in colour was released on BBC Store on the 31st of December, followed by a special edition Blu-ray um, containing both the black and white and the colour versions, and that came out on the 6th of February 2017. I mean, let's start by uh, addressing the whole point of this particular story. 
this is the first regenerated story. Um, and of course, it's incredibly important as a result. Um, you guys are no better than I do. Is this the first time we've, well, obviously the first regenerated story, so it's the first time in that respect, but were there any other occasions where the Doctor regenerated mid-season instead of at the end of a season or on a Christmas special? No, this is the only time it regenerates near the start of a series, but if you remember the fifth Doctor in the caves of Androzani regenerated in season 21, and then that was followed by the Twin Dilemma. So we ended that series getting to know our new Doctor. Thank Okay. Uh, and this, obviously, is, is hugely important to us fans uh, because this is what defined the series forever to come, wasn't it? I mean, if, if that hadn't been a successful experiment replacing William Hartnell with Patrick Troughton, if, if the viewers had not accepted that change, it would have been finished, wouldn't it? It would have lasted maybe another season and then, and then that, it would have been no more. Yeah, it would have, I think it would have... You can yeah. tell that they're starting to perhaps run, away, run out a wee bit of steam under Hartnell as obviously he's becoming more and more ill and he's less and less able to, to carry the series and having trouble with his lines. So obviously he's he had an extra he's, week he's off. Not that, he's not that bad. He's not that well, bad. I think that, gets, I think that gets overstated. You know, he's, he's, he's not on his last legs, but... He's definitely he's definitely struggling a little bit. I think I, I think, think gets, the fact I think that, that he missed overreported. the fact that he missed his penultimate episode due to illness with uh, with Tenth Planet episode three, just showed, there was definitely there must have been an ongoing concern given yeah, that that's I mean, the, the start of a series recording block. That's only seven weeks into. Yeah. And it's it's, it's well reported that I think that he had arguments with Donald Tosh and all that, and uh, with um, John Wells, and John Wells couldn't really wait to get away. And, and it's and it, it's a shame, but you know, it's it's one of these things. If you know, if Bill hadn't been ill, would and kept going with the series have run as long as it did in the, in the end up? It's kind of Dave, Dave, you'll disagree with me on this, but since we're talking about the departure of Hartnell, I have to tell you, I know you said at the very beginning of our, our relationship in these podcasts that. Hartnell was one of your favourite doctors. He is probably my he's probably my second least favourite. Oh really? Yeah, I mean I, I I look I mean I I like I enjoy watching his episodes, but I enjoy watching them for the stories, for the acting of his companions and, and the supporting cast. Um, I find him an incredibly irritating individual. I just don't take to him at all. I think if I had been old enough to watch the show at that stage, I don't think I would have enjoyed it at all. Right. Um, I, you know, you know, all all opinions and all that. And I, I completely disagree. I mean, I think magnetic. I think that everything that, um, and we're getting away from Power of the Daleks here, but I think everything <laughs> that everything that Bill does with it, everyone who's followed him has picked up and taken a little bit of what he did and run with it. I, th- I think he's, I think he's. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's it's a technically perfect performance all the time it's it's not but he's um I, th- I think he's brilliant he's he's so watchable there's always something going on um he's but, he, he that's knows definitely carries that on in power you can see that just when he's in the background even in the surviving clips his eyes are darting everywhere he's very much taking on that mantle yes he might be in the background a lot more but this is definitely you know a change in doctor and a change in style but it's still very much the same man my, my two older brothers were heavily into Doctor Who when I was too young to watch it. And my oldest brother, Kenny, still refuses to accept any other actor in the role than William Hartnell. Oh, good man. <laughs> good man. <laughs> was this a successful debut for, for, for Troughton? 100% yes. He's very much, he comes into it as the man of mystery. 
he's not confirming his identity until later on. But when his identity is confirmed, it's ironically via a Dalek, given that uh, they recognise him when they're in governor the governor's room, uh, his office, and they're the ones who see him. And you can just imagine that the, the iris and the Dalek eye stalk is narrowing, like its eyes were glaring at him and making sure that, yep, yeah, we know who you are, you know who we are, and they're sizing each other up. I think it's, yeah. an, ingenious, it's an ingenious stroke to bring the Daleks in to get you know, a bit of continuity between the old Doctor and the new when we're yeah. still being we're still getting used to Ben and Polly as companions. We've only known them through the war machines, the smugglers, and the Tenth Planet. And then here they are, they've got a new man, in, and they're thinking, who is he? Just as we're thinking, exactly the same. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really well done that Polly takes to him much more quickly than Ben does. Ben's obviously a lot more sceptical, doesn't trust him, he's asking a lot more questions. And I th- Ben he doesn't really lose that. I think when you watch or listen to, in, in most cases, the, the stories from season three and series four, you do get that there's a, it's, not, it's not at the forefront of it, but there's a definite narrative thread that Ben responded better to the, the authority figure of the first doctor, the most senior figure, and he... And he Never, there's a bit in the underwater menace, I think, when he disc- he refers to the to Trouton's doctor and says, "Look at him, he's not normal, is he?" You know, Ben takes a while, a lot longer to adjust, whereas Polly, who's obviously a bit more of a free spirit, might I be permitted to indulge in a James Bond tangent at this point? Of course, yes, you may. Uh, that's that's my other uh, immature obsession, apart from Doctor Who, and, and what you said, Kenny, about the, the Dalek recognizing it. Um, and that is a, a clever way for the writers to remind the audience this is the same character, even though it looks different. Um, obviously, James Bond goes through this every time they change the lead actor. And, and I remember watching uh, The Living Daylights for the first time in 1987 and, and being struck by the number of times that Bond played by Timothy Dalton, especially in the first half hour of the film. Whenever he meets characters, characters that we've not even met before, um, they all say to him, ah, oh, nice to work with you again, Mr. Bond, or oh, I've, uh, your reputation precedes you, Mr. Bond, and, and all of this, because they're trying to draw the audience into the idea that this is that all these other supporting characters recognise him, so therefore the audience should as well. And they obviously tried that with, with Power of the Daleks, and, 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 and we agree it worked. Yeah, definitely. it's interesting, that actually, that, that prompts me to remember... Um, the slightly way, different way they, they handled it when George Lazenby did On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Is <sighs> um, <laughs> that a line that my dad loved? Because um, I remember him reveling in it when he watched it on TV once. It was, um, this never happened to the other fella. Oh, you know, I remember it. Was, it I, think that's about, I think that's about as referential, as, as slightly self-referential as James Bond got when it came to the change of actor. That must be one of the few bits of the film where George Lazenby was allowed to use his own <laughs> voice, was it? Instead of George Baker's. Indeed it was. George Baker, that's right. Yeah. Is George Baker not actually in that film as well? He, he was. He's Sir Hilary Bray. Yeah. Um, but but Lazenby was so bad that they actually had to... Uh, was that was that why? Yeah. It was. They, they, you couldn't be... I mean, it's about a third of the film. Anyway, let, let's... Anyway, yes. Back to Power of the Dalek. Back to Power of the, the, the Doctor Who podcast, not the Power of Free, the James Bond podcast. Yes. Well, that's our spin-off series. We should do a James coming, Bond special on Coming soon, three James Bond films. Yeah, that's um, a great idea. Yeah, so yeah, Power of the Daleks. Power of the Daleks. It's it's worth pointing out that um that it was directed by Christopher Barry, who had directed a few serials before, so he knew his way around Doctor and how it worked. And it was also written by David Whitaker and given a script polished by Dennis Spooner, 
who were both right there at the start of season one and season two at the, at the formative sort of time for the shows. So it's, it's obvious that that the BBC were sort of thinking we have to do this, we have to do this well, we have to you know make sure this this works, and I think that's probably a, a reason why they got the Daleks back. Do you think um, it mattered that they had a complete radical redesign of the Daleks for this episode? In that instead of having models, they just had bits of card with a Dalek painted on. <laughs> I thought they were quite good, those photographic blocks. Did you know they're, 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 they're pretty good. I, I must admit, I needed to point it out to me before I actually noticed. But, but when you notice it, you really notice. God, your thought, vision has was, been conquered and destroyed, Tom. I thought, I thought you were saying it was really a, the radical design then, as much as they were they were a black and white cartoon rather than yeah. a, a physical BBC prop. Yeah. But don't you think that the Daleks are at their best in this story? I mean, Absolutely. yes, we saw them in the original story. They were plotting, obviously, to detonate the atomic bomb to increase the radiation and wipe out the Thals. But here they've got they've got an end game, and because there's only three of them to start with. They are manipulating people, playing on humanity's weaknesses, and then building on that, and then building up their own army at the same time. So it's a clever, calculated ploy. And of course, we did see that again when we saw Victory of the Daleks with Matt Smith. Well, well Mark Gatiss, uh, you know, says that he, he drew inspiration from Power of the Daleks because he loved, as I do, the, this idea of the Daleks pretending to be your servants, you know, I am your servant. And he used that to good effect, you know, making tea in, the, in, in Churchill's bunker in Victory of the Daleks. Um, and there's another, I suppose, a parallel between those two stories because it's the Doctor's identity that confirms yeah. the, you know, the Daleks' own, um, now how would you call it, you know, that they, they confirm from the, the, the Doctor that they are the real thing, that they are the yeah. Uh, the, the genuine article because of this, you know, eugenics experiment that Daleks have been carrying on. The, you know, Doctor Who does draw on its own mythology, and I think that's a perfectly valid way of drawing up a new story. Um, but it's quite interesting that that was used explicitly at the start of Matt Smith's tenure, uh, as well as at the beginning of Patrick Troughton's. And Smith himself, of course, took a lot of uh, inspiration from the portrayal of the Doctor by Troughton. I am your servant. I am your servant. So, Lesterson, they're even capable of speech. Yes. But then, why not? After all, they have a certain intelligence. Yes, I know, but... But it is, it is an intelligence that we can control. So what you want is permission to continue your experiment. Governor, think what it would mean if we were to set it to work in the mines. It could double our production overnight. Consider the effect it could have on our whole economy. Yes, and the effect of that on Earth. Yes, they could be very grateful. I shall stop you. I will. All right, Lesterson. Permission granted. Permission? Permission for what? To continue my work, Examiner. But, but didn't you all hear what I said? The Daleks must be destroyed! Oh, never. Very well. If not by my order, then by Earth. Come then, Polly. Uh, examiner, just a moment. Why are you so against this project? But I've told you! Oh, I realize I can't give you any proof, but you've no idea of the danger. No. Yes! Danger! I shall be contacting Earth just so soon as radio communications have been restored. You're my servant, are you? I am. Very well. Immobilize yourself. 
Troughton's interesting because he's, I think out of all of the Doctors, he's the one who sort of varies his performance the most whilst he's doing it. It's quite, he's quite slippery at times. There's, there's almost moments when you, I'm, I'm not going to say inconsistent because that suggests that he didn't know what he was doing. And it, it took me a long time to kind of realise that this is maybe, this this idea, this this aspect of the Doctor is, he's aware that he's, you know, that, that he could be caught by the Time Lords at any point. You know, he's aware that he's a fugitive in time and space. You know, it's, it's, he, he likes to try and be one step ahead of everyone, you know? Except that's only the narrative, isn't it? I mean, in, in you know, obviously Troughton himself at that point, having just taken on the role, there was no there was no Time Lord mythology at that point. No, exactly. I know exactly. But it's, it's, that, was, that was how, when I did my big watch through, that was how I kind of rationalised it to myself. I thought, right, sure. well, why, is, why is he so slippery? Why, yeah. why is in, in one episode is he quite like this? And then it's almost impossible to reconcile the way the Doctor behaves in Evil of the Daleks with, yeah, yeah. You know, with some other stories just because he's so... I'm not going to say vicious, just so focused. It's obviously heartbreaking that so many of these episodes uh, are no longer with us. Damn you, BBC. Um, big, you know, iconic, important episodes or adventures like Tenth Planet and Power of the Daleks. Well, see, the thing, of course, as well, one of the, re- the things that affected Power of the Daleks um, very soon after it was made, and obviously after Evil of the Daleks was made, Terry Nation was trying to launch his own Dalek spin-off series. And he withdrew the rights for the BBC to use the Daleks. Now, I think that affected over overseas sales as well. Am I right? Yeah, it was only ever sold to Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so this meant that the Power of the Daleks, being the first story with the Second Doctor, couldn't be so, wasn't sold abroad as widely as as much of the Harnell stuff was, which meant that because some foreign buyers couldn't buy the story that introduced the Second Doctor, they were less inclined to buy the subsequent ah, right. stories. So yeah. that has the, the kind of domino effect that that's another reason why that we don't there's, there's less of a chance of of trout and stories turning up which makes it all the more remarkable right. that we got all the ones that we did in 2013 even yeah. though it's missing though we can watch power in several formats we've got black and white animated we've got color animated and we've got the telesnap reconstruction using the off-air photos taken by john cura set to the soundtrack as well i haven't seen the telesnap version of this would you recommend it hugely definitely yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the version I watched this time in preparation. It's it's um the animation's terrific, but I, I, I quite like watching the recons. You know, the um the telly snaps are, yeah, because it's it's the genuine article, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Gives you a good flavor, good flavor as to what it would have been like when you marry it up with the clips as well. Yeah. We're going to talk about our next adventure momentarily, but first, in the very first episode of this, uh, Davey, Kenny, and I talked about what our Doctor Who birth stories were, and we decided to ask our Twitter followers what story uh, was broadcast closest to their own date of birth, and I was surprised by how many people actually responded. So we've got a lot. I can't read them all out in this episode, but we'll read more out in the next episode. But let's let me go very quickly through what we've got uh, so far. Jack says it's very tight, but Rose is closer. Chris Lewis says The Demons, episode 5. B.C. Hall says the middle of Colony in Space, 1972. Robert Stroud, Remembers of the Daleks, Part 1, aired just over three months after he was born in 1988. Uh, The City of Jeff, I was born 22 days after the Deadly Assassin and 20 days before the face of evil. Wish my birthday was on the 11th now, damn it, language Jeff. Uh, I'd have been exactly midpoint of Lonely Tom wandering companionless Ha ha, he finishes as if wandering alone in a TARDIS is anything to be laughed at. 
Phil Newman says, I was born two days after episode five of The Sensorites, written by a different P. Newman. Very good, Phil, very good. Laurie M says, survival episode three, but there's a gap of almost three years, so I wouldn't worry too much. Don't worry, Laurie, we're not worried. Rhea says, I was in the wilderness years too, but closest to survival. Interesting, never thought about this before. Well, that's what happens when you listen to the Power of Three podcast, we make you think. Chris Vobe says, I was born on 16th of June, 1989. Battlefield Part 1 is the closest on 6th of September of that year. Feathered Friend says, The War Games, Episode 3. Who or Die says, Terror of the Autons kicked off a month after I was born. Perhaps this was me. Um, that's a reference to the little gif that was included in the uh, tweet, which doesn't come across very well on a podcast, but it's the picture of the wee evil autumn demon dummy coming to life in the back of the car seat. Andrew Smith of Blessed Infamy, um, I believe. Andrew Smith gentlemen. of this parish. Yeah. An unearthly child broadcast when I was a year and four months old. And Peter from PA and Stuart Burns say exactly the same. Melvin Pena. I emerged from the womb a few days before Horror of Fang Rock episode one. Yeah, all right, mate, spare us the gory details. <laughs> Andrew Storr, between episode one and two of The Silurians, coming up on its 50th anniversary, as presumably is Andrew. And David Darlington says, I was born a few hours before Terror of the Autons part one. Well, just before you move on, oh, I'd good. like to tell you a joke, everybody. <laughs> Oh, great. Good. Good. Oh, don't do this to us, Kenny. No, no, no. You know you want to. Right. Okay. What's a sailor's favourite Doctor Who story? The 11th Oar. So next we're going to review this particular classic masterpiece. That was a nice nap. Now, down to business. I'm a bit worried about the temple flicker in Sector 13. There's a Bicentino refit of the TARDIS to book in. I must just pop over to Center I-7 and then perhaps a quick holiday. Right, that all seems quite clear. Just three small points. Where am I? Who am I? And who are you? The Rani! Stay back! This is idiotic! Kenny, can you tell us what TARDIS fandom says about time and the Rani? Yep. Time and the Rani was the first serial of season 24 of Doctor Who. It marked the debut of Sylvester McCoy as the seventh Doctor, while Kate O'Mara made her second and final televised appearance as the Rani, not including the charity special Dimensions in Time. It was also the series' first exploits with computer-generated imagery, a relatively limited technology at the time. An old computer-animated opening title sequence was introduced with this story, along with a new arrangement of the theme by Keith McCulloch an appropriately electronic rendition composed entirely on a Prophet 5 synthesizer. The logo of the series was also changed into a three-dimensionally animated part of the title sequence by Oliver Elms and became the series logo that would stay in use until 1996. Following the circumstances of Colin Baker's exit from the role, the Sixth Doctor was made to immediately regenerate into the Seventh at the start of this story. So while The Ultimate Foe was the last story to feature Colin Baker as the Sixth Doctor, Time and the Rani was the final appearance of the Sixth Doctor properly, though not played by Colin Baker himself. Baker was offered the chance to reprise the role of the Sixth Doctor in a proposed regeneration story, but he declined. He instead asked to be given a full season for his departure, but the denial of this request prompted him to turn down the offer. As a result, 
a pre-credit sequence was added into Time and the Rani, featuring the Doctor's regeneration, with McCoy portraying both the Sixth and Seventh Doctors. To hide this, his face remains hidden until the end of the regeneration sequence. The cause of the Sixth Doctor's regeneration is not explicitly shown on screen, although he is seen being thrown across the console room as the TARDIS is pulled down during the flight by the Rani. The novel A Spiral Scratch by Gary Russell and the Big Finish audio The Brink of Death by Nick Briggs both provide narratives for the Sixth Doctor's regeneration, with both retroactively leading into events of this serial. Right, Davy, yes. what do you think of Time and the Rani? I'm I'm a big fan of Time and the Rani. I mean, it doesn't doesn't have the best reputation. The broad thing, broad feeling amongst a lot of Doctor Who fans, that it's not very good at all. But I'm personally, I'm very fond of it. A, a big part of it is nostalgia. Um, I kind of drifted a bit in the gap, you know, between the 1985 pause and then during Trial of a Time Lord. So. But this this story really really went back in. It's um, the series is at a real sort of crossroads at this point. Um, Sylvester being cast is essentially like you know the program's last chance after you know the BBC tried to get rid of it in 1985 and the trial hadn't really done. Trial of the Time Lord season 23 hadn't done as well as they maybe hoped. Um, it's you know it's there's a new director who brings a real real pace and energy to it that hadn't really been seen I don't think in a style really since Graham Harper. Um, the special effects, as Kenny mentioned, the CGI effects used for the first time, even the practical effects like the TED traps and a lot of the model work, the, the, the space rockets and the Rani's base and stuff are all exceptional. So next level, really. Um, and, and at the heart of it, you've got Kate O'Mara and Bonnie Langford who are completely given their absolute best because they know that this has this program, you know, it's got to succeed. You know, a lot of... Kate and Bonnie just taking it so seriously and really raising their game and 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 of course at the heart of it you've got Sylvester who is you know a little a little off at first but um you can basically see him sort of you know getting it right as he goes along fig- figuring it all out and, and and nailing it and um and, and and if nothing else it's the first Doctor Who story to mention Elvis it's <laughs> you know it's class well first of all we we disagree on this quite strongly, don't well, we? Well, I what I think we how we could solve this, Davy, is if you could lend me your copy of Time of the Rani, <laughs> because the one that I've got, and it was one that was issued, I think, by something called the BBC. <laughs> um, I watched it this week for the first time since it was first broadcast. Right. Now, I'm going to go against advice that my mother gave me when I was a kid, because she said if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But that would mean me not being able to say anything at all about Time of the Rani. So I'm just going to plow on. I mean, where do you start with this? I mean, at the time in, in 1987, was this first yeah, broadcast? Yeah. Uh-huh. I remember watching this at the time and then thinking at the time, nah, this is it. I've, I've had enough of Doctor Who. I've, how old, I've how old were you at that point, Tom, if you don't mind me asking? How old was I? 23. Right. Okay. And... Um, and I hope that when I revisited it this time round, I would be pleasantly surprised. And I really wasn't. I mean, right. first of all, let's take Bonnie Langford. I mean, you've got to understand that for people of my age, Bonnie Langford, her casting originally was a shock. We were yeah, I, I remember like, a lot of scepticism. Yeah. Um, and it was, I have to say, it was scepticism that was fully justified when she appeared on screen. Um, you know, she, she was known to us as, as Violet Elizabeth Bott yeah. from Just William. Yeah. 
yeah. and for showing off on Junior Showtime and doing dance routines with Lena Zavaroni. Yeah. She was not the kind of person we ever wanted associated with Doctor Who. And she and, and I'm sorry, she cannot act. And she certainly couldn't act in Time of the Rally. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Sylvester McCoy. And I still, and I'm sorry, I know he's a lovely guy. And I've spoken to friends who know him quite well. And, and I know for a fact he's a lovely guy. He didn't have a shred of acting ability, certainly not in Time in the Rani. And I know that, you know, um, you know, people who were involved, I think I saw an interview with John Nathan Turner, he was saying that, you know, they were just once again recovering from attack for being too violent in the Colin Baker years. And they were trying to kind of claw back the family viewing uh, segment at this point. Um, and though, therefore they have no violence in it. How can anyone look at the first at the pratfalls of Sylvester McCoy as Kitamara kind of gives him a funny look and he falls down two stairs? Well, Tom, I think this is actually quite a subtle bit of acting from McCoy here. You're now bear me out. Yeah. Bear yeah. me out on this one. I, bear in mind the sure doctor's just re, the doctor's just regenerated. Yeah. Colin Baker is about six foot two. And all of a sudden he finds himself he's now five foot six with a costume that's far too big for him. And I've always interpreted this as the doctor re yes. realigning himself. His his balance and everything is completely off. He doesn't yeah. know who he is, so he's not yeah. comfortable in his own skin. So I've always read it that way, that his balance is off and he's tumbling and falling about yeah. because he doesn't use he isn't his centre of gravity is completely different. Yeah, and I, the, I the, really... very first, the very first scene where he wakes up. He's written and played very much as the sex doctor. The Rani knocks him out. He wakes up again. He's a wee bit scrambled. Then he settles down into into the new, you know, the new oh. body who is who is there from the moment that he reconnects with Melanie. He's, I think he's Sylvester is brilliant once he gets going. But when admit, he falls it's, over, yeah. it's quite clearly. I mean, for someone who is actually a physical actor who had spent quite a long time doing physical acting, for someone who has that background. It is quite obvious that he is not falling over. He is kind of sitting down, basically, right. in a clumsy way, and it doesn't look real. It doesn't look authentic. Let me let me just say a few other things. First of all, the opening titles. My God. They're amazing. So, what are you talking Sylvester, about? <laughs> Sylvester, Sylvester McCoy winks no, not at Sylvester the camera. McCoy. Not Sylvester right? McCoy, the doctor. Yeah, yeah. And the dreadful logo, I mean, you, you know, Kenny mentioned this, the new 3D logo. It's, it's the worst logo in the, in the show's history. It, it looks, does look like a game show logo. There's no it, denying it that. It looks like I'm something like CBeebies. Yeah. And actually, the CBeebies thing kept occurring. Maybe the C, CBBC thing rather than CBeebies. It is. It's it is very much a CBBC uh, audience. It does feel a bit... I think the first episode is a... I would, I would agree with you. I, I wrote this down, actually. The first episode does feel a bit kids' TV. But I think that was deliberate. I mean, if you, they they probably still had, you know, the criticisms of you know season twenty two ringing in the ears. They probably realised that making something as, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about Trial of Time Law quite soon because the, the Blu-ray box set's coming out. Trial of Time Law is quite involved. They, they they were trying to make it as as family friendly and kid friendly as possible. But there's there's, there's some real, if you pardon the pun, there's some real steel to it as well, like the tetraps. Yes, yeah, the tetrap. I mean, you could, do you not think the tetraps are a good design? The effort they made to represent their point of view. Do you not think that was well done? No, I don't. I think oh, right. I completely disagree. I think that was, I think it's phenomenal. I don't think there is anyone on that on that show who is 
not trying, who is not bringing their best. Now, admittedly, there might be a few people who don't know exactly quite what they're doing with it yet, but they get there. Look at Andrew Morgan's next story. Look at Sylvester, even in, in Paradise Tiles, which is the next one he's made. He has really, really settled down. He is a lot more confident. He knows more what he's doing. I mean, you could look at it, you could look at any doctor's first story, and sort of see moments when they're not too sure. Tom Baker overplays it enormously in Robot, but then you get into Arkham Space, and you know he's there. Let's talk about Kate O'Mara. I love the Rani. I think, I she's, think she's great, great as well. Let's talk, let's talk about Kate O'Mara. <laughs> in, in the early in the early years of Doctor Who, an awful lot of the actors who appeared had made their name on stage and they were stage actors who weren't quite used to working in a TV studio and, and that comes across. I thought by 1987 we would have kind of... Oh, right? Now, honestly, Carla and my wife was watching this with me at one point and she said at one point, you know, that it wouldn't be out of place now if the doctor then turned to the fourth wall and said, what was that, children? Yes. What was it you said? And then for us all to shout... She's behind you, because so much of the performance looks and sounds like a pantomime. The way that Kate and Maradona oh, no, does it doesn't. It, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's quite. It's. I'll, I'll grant you that it's. It's quite at the start. Yeah, as I say, an episode. It's a bit. It's definitely. It's. It's. You know, some people are a bit. They might be pitching it a bit high, but definitely. Did, did you watch the whole story? Oh yes. I mean, I. I'm. I'm one of these. I, I sit sometimes and sort of, you know, wonder and sort of think, what is it? What is it that um. What is it that people don't see in time in the Rani that I do see? <laughs> I don't, or vice versa, you know, because um Davy, even even Andrew so Carroll well... was interviewed and John Nathan Turner and oh, yeah, Jane yeah. Baker were yeah. no, complaining no, about no, it. Listen though, this even the story is so well structured. You get the gradual build up of what the Rani's doing, you get the doctor gradual recovery, the doctor and Melanie being separated and then you know, coming back together and Melanie learning what's happened. You get the the gradual drip about what she's keeping in in the and you know, in the secret thing at the top of the stairs, and it's the brain. Admittedly, there's a horrible, big, long technobabble spiel in episode four when the Rani explains what's going on. It's one of these things. I, I, I will always give a Doctor Who story a chance. I but, gave this a chance in '87. I, I, I was going to give it another chance this week when I rewatched it. What, Let me ask you a question. Yes. Yes. When the Doctor confronting the Rani, I think it was in episode two, points off some point in this and says, look! And the Rani turns around and he gets his scarf. Scarf, yes. Throws it around her. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me that when that happened, a little bit of you inside didn't die? No, it didn't, because I could see what they were doing in the story. You know, uh, the Doctor is... It's, is, 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 it, is it clumsy? Is it a bit nah? Yeah, but it's not It's not enough to make me hate it. Yeah, I'd like to put time in the Rani in context. This was commissioned by John Nathan Turner from Pip and Jane Baker who he thought were fantastic. Andrew Cartman was appointed as script editor and was absolutely aghast at what he was presented with. He tried his best to try and salvage something from it, but ultimately it had been written and paid for and they were too close to broadcast to do too much to change about it. Pip and Jane Baker are being charitable. They were... No, man, that's 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 rubbish. That's, no. that's just the received wisdom. That's... No, no, it's not. No. I'm afraid I've, Pip, I've seen... Pip and Jane's um, What on Earth Kids TV series. Yeah, Kids TV. That's very much their standard. I'm afraid that Doctor Who isn't really... I mean, they were great for Colin. They're absolutely fantastic. Yeah. They wrote well for the sixth Doctor. Mark of the Rani is one of his best stories. Yeah. Their writing style, their use of wordplay, absolutely up Colin Street. But for me, it didn't work with Time of the Rani. However, 
I do have a, an unusual relationship with a story as it was one of the first ones that I recorded in VHS. So I watched this quite a lot. So there's a lot of things about it that I don't like, mainly the script, but there's a lot of things that I think are great. Um, Andrew Morgan's direction is fantastic. Look at the use of the bubble traps, the way they're used. There's a lot of pace to it. It feels very much like a 21st century story in that sense, the way it moves. Um, I think particularly you find, um, the, I say the scenes with the bubble traps are great. And even inside the central leisure, when the, the, the alien bug things are released to kill, I think that's quite well kill done. Insects. But, yeah. yeah. But the, by the insects large, themselves aren't very good, but yeah, no, the rest, the rest but of it is. But the way it's paced is good. Um, yeah. The other thing that I particularly like, and I know that a lot of people absolutely hate, is Keith McCullough's music, because I am a huge fan of Pet Shop Boys, and a lot of what Keith does feels very much similar to what they were doing. Whether it's appropriate to be used in a TV programme, that's probably debatable. But I think on its own, I think it actually stands up quite well as a separate soundtrack. If you ever play the separate... Uh, DVD isolated soundtracks they're actually not bad for background listening if you're in that 80s kind of vibe um, on, I think the cast are good, I think you've got um, Bass and Varun are well cast um, with Donald Pickering and Benedict Cumberbatch's mum who of course acted together in the Faceless Ones many many moons ago um, I think they're very good um, and I the other thing to say that if you forced it me at gunpoint to say a good thing about Time of the Rani, I would say, well, Benedict Cumberbatch's mum is quite good. But yes. That, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, um, um, I, I, I mean, what do you guys think of the music? Do you I think, think it's done? I mean, at the, t at the time, I remember being sort of struck by it, and I, I wasn't as... I wasn't as enamoured with it as I sort of became because it was it was quite I mean it was reckon, a bit you know it sounded like pop music and it was interesting that it was being used in a drama. Um, it took me a long time to get used to Kev McCulloch's approach. I didn't really notice the music because I was so open mouthed and shock when <laughs> Kate Amara started pretending to be Bonnie Langford. No, she's I, pretending to be Melanie because the doctor, she's drugged the oh, doctor I know. it's easier I, to manipulate them. I, I understood, I, I understood yeah, what, the, what the story was trying to do, but because I understood what the story was trying to do, I was in shock for the rest of the series, so I didn't really understand, I didn't really pay too much attention to the music. I was too, I was too <laughs> obsessed with asking, my, asking myself, are they serious? <laughs> Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm, uh, it, I'm, it, it, it listen, leaves this is, me this is, this is See, this is quite interesting because I know that the script is rubbish, but I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of good content in there. If you look, unfortunately, it is all surface. Um, I, don't, I don't think that at all. I mean, genuinely, I'm not, and I'm not just trying to be contrary. I think it's really well structured as far as the way it keeps the Doctor and Melanie apart. Um, and as I say, the way the Rani's plan gets drip fed. Some of the dialogue is atrocious. I'll grant you that. A lot, very little of it. It's believable speech that a, a, a person would say to another human being. That's maybe Kate, sorry, um, Pip and Jane's biggest fault is that their their dialogue is very overblown. Um, it's interesting if you took the bare bones of the story and gave it to someone else to write up, you probably get you would maybe get something a bit more palatable for more people. I don't know. And I think I even things like you look at the monitor when you look at the strange matter asteroid. I mean, the CGI at the start, yes, it's very primitive. You think this is 1987? You think Toy Story's it really was that. I remember like the night, the night part one went out. I remember my dad was in back shift 
My mum was up at the church for the country dancing class that she used to go to. And Alison and I watched the first, after the episode finished, we rewound the tape and we watched the first couple of minutes about 20 times. We just watched the TARDIS landing, the regeneration and the title sequence. For 1987, it was mind-blowing. It was a quantum that, leap from everything that, that's been going That's on all before. very well to say that it was new tech and it was great special effects. If it's not an improvement on previous title sequences, then it's a waste of time, even no matter no, how I, I technological... I think it was. I mean, I, th- I, still think, I still think that title sequence is brilliant. Yeah, but I, it, I, it's, it's not... I, Look at look at the mafia title sequences were always always, um, you know the, the the feedback in the camera effect. I think that's sure, just wonderful. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, if you can't improve on that, why why bother changing it? Just well, because, just to say well we're using yeah, technology now. I mean I, I know what you mean. I know you, I know what you mean. It's like but but then I suppose you'd just be accused of of repetition and just doing the same thing. They could could they have kept doing slit scan or right? Or this this, around, this is know? this this is my last criticism. Right, I just want to ask you guys a question. <laughs> When Sylvester McCoy was doing his whole uh, wily coyote shtick by, you know, running away uh, and 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 you know doing his whole slapstick thing where he's turning a corner and he's he's, he's doing it in one leg sort of thing, yeah. and, and certainly in the style of a moronic cartoon character, you you thought that was okay? It was fine as it was. It's fine in the context. As I said already, he he settles down. This I is, think this is a new you doctor, can put it down you know? to post-regeneration traumatic stress. And yeah, and an actor figure, figuring figuring what he's what he's doing. You know, there wasn't yeah. much with him in terms. The script was written openly for anyone to play it, yeah. and if Andrew Cartman wasn't really allowed to go to town on it to refine. Yeah. So I think as an opener, it's definitely and, not the greatest. And Sylvester, and, Sylvester said himself that he he would have he you know has watched it back and has said that you know he thinks he went a little too far with the clowning initially. But, you know, if you're going to condemn Sylvester for clowning, you have to condemn Tom Baker for, you know, boggling his eyes every two seconds. And, you know, no, you don't. I mean, those those two actors are a universe apart. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I would, yeah, fair enough, yeah. But I think you can't, you can't, you can't criticise one guy for one thing and not criticise another guy for doing the same thing, I think. I enjoyed the, the DVDs because I always like, you know, the making of uh, documentaries. I was fascinated by this story that Sylvester McCoy uh, told that Jonathan Turner was forced by the sixth floor um, to get a couple of, you know, to, to audition another couple of actors, even after he'd said he wanted Sylvester McCoy to do it. And he got these two actors, Dermot Crowley and David Fielder, to, you know, to do the same uh, scene in front of Janet Fielding. Mm. And the three of them, all the three actors who were shortlisted, performed the same scene. And according to Sylvester McCoy, the other two actors were deliberately picked because although they were good actors, they weren't suitable for Doctor Who. And I'm sorry, I looked at both those editions and I thought they were both better than Sylvester McCoy. I completely disagree. Es- especially Dermot Crowley, who was excellent. Tom, what do you what do you think of Sylvester's later stuff? I mean, do, are you have you seen his Because I, I think you said to me before that you, you stopped watching. Yeah, I stopped watching. Seen, I think about have you maybe seen season twenty five and season twenty six. Silver Nemesis was the last McCoy right. one I watched. So have you seen the ones that came after it? No, that's what I'm saying. Oh, Sylvester. Oh, right. look forward to that Blu-ray. Oh, Tom, yes, Tom. Twenty third December. There's, there's, he does so much more. He gets. I'm not going to say he gets so much better because that would suggest that I didn't think he was good to start with. He he really and you know you're never. I'm I'm never going to sit and sort of say that I think an actor who plays the Doctor is, isn't good or isn't or isn't rubbish. You know what I mean? There's, there's some that I like a lot more than others, a lot more than others in some cases. 
but I'm, I'm never going to criticize. You know, I think you know, you if you haven't seen season twenty six, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll jump around tonight with the DVDs. Please don't. <laughs> I think I think you know a big part a big part of us. I mean, those those was around Kenny's age, Kenny my my's age. I mean, so you know, Sylvester he was our doctor in a lot of ways. You know. When all my friends were wanting to, you know, idolising Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I was idolising Sylvester McCoy. You know, <laughs> it, he's—it's true. I, I, it's McCoy true. is so likable. Like, like I that think for a lot of people. his performance um, hugely improves, and he's—he's he's a very, very likable character. Yeah, I mean, so much of the—we're going to talk about one of his big finish stories quite soon in one of our other podcasts, and he's—he is, you know, for me, he's up there, and a big part of it is personal attachment. But you know, he has. He's, he, I think he's terrific. I really do. Well, if, if there's any consolation, I, I blame him less than I blame John Nathan Turner. However, let's move on. Yes, as they say in Time and the Rani, time and tide melts the snowman. Yeah, that's another thing that really annoyed me about that, that yeah. dialogue, all those little stupid mangled I, phrases. I, I felt like putting yeah. my foot through the television. <laughs> But that, that was, oh dear, I mean, what you really need is a rock that talks. <laughs> oh, yes, I mean, I, I, was, I was, you know, I can't wait to see more episodes where he rolls his R's quite, oh, the, quite in the way oh, that he yeah, keeps I mean, Sylvester's R's out of this. Well, time and tide melts the snowman. Wait for no man. Who's waiting? I'm ready. You're certainly going to take a bit of getting used to. I'll grow on you, Mel. I'll grow on you. <laughs> Okay, with that controversy safely behind us, I'm sure listeners will have their own view on Time and the Rani. Uh, feel free to share it with us on our Twitter feed. But in the meantime, we're going to move on a few years to this. If you're a doctor, why does your box say police? <laughs> That's disgusting. What is that? Apple's rubbish. I hate apples. You said you loved them. No, no, no. I love yogurt. Yogurt's my favourite. Give me yogurt. I hate yogurt. It's stuffed with bits in. You said it was your favourite. New mouth. New rules. It's like eating after cleaning your teeth. Everything tastes good. What is it? What's wrong with you? Wrong with me? It's not my fault. Why can't you give me any decent food? You're Scottish. Fry something. Uh, bacon. <laughs> bacon. That's bacon. Are you trying to poison me? Ah, uh, you see? Beans. Beans are evil. Bad, bad beans. Bread and butter. Now you're talking. And stay out! I've got some carrots. Carrots? Are you insane? No, wait, hang on. I know what I need. I need, I need, I need fish fingers and custard. And for the next few minutes, 
we are no longer the power of three, we are the power of four. We've been joined by a new member, a temporary new member of the team, and I believe that Katie Smith is with us. Yes, we now have with us uh, somebody whose birth story is the Christmas invasion. Oh, As good Katie was, I know. Katie was born on February the 13th, 2006. So not long after David Tennant had made his full debut, but uh, two months before New Earth went out. So we go. So Katie, welcome to the power of three, or as we are now known, the power of four. Thanks. Hello, Katie. How are you? I'm all right. I should, po I should point out, Katie, that no one is allowed to be as young as you. I mean, that's ridiculous. How can you be born when David Tennant was a doctor? I have no clue. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Are you a fan? Tell us, tell us, um, you're a fan of Doctor Who. You have to be a dad like Kenny, I suppose. I mean, I'm a little bit of a fan. Like, I've seen a few of them, but I wouldn't, like, say that I'm a full-out fan like my dad. Katie's uh, only watched a few classic episodes. Um, when she was four days old, um, she got to watch The Ice Warriors. Ah, and, well, she was wide awake at uh, four in the morning, so I thought I'm going to put something on. So that was her first classic story. And then as she got a bit older. Her first uh, story, which is a bit older, was Time and the Rani. Um, oh, she thought it was geez. very pink, and she only watched episode one. Yeah, well, that's, you know, any more than that would be child abuse. <laughs> Katie, <laughs> tell us, um, I believe you're named after somebody important in the, uh, in the universe. Yes, I am, actually. Tell us. Uh, Katie Manning. Excellent. Have you met her? I have, actually, yeah. Met her um, a little while ago. And, and did you tell her that you were named after her? Yes, uh, yes, actually. But um, I met her a little while ago, and she was very, very nice and friendly. She takes a lot of time with all the different fans she would meet at different events and stuff. So it takes quite a while, and a lot of people want to see her, so she takes a lot of time. And okay. you got a very nice present from her as well. Yes, I did. She got a signed first day cover from 2006, the year Katie was born, Lovely. and a personally signed picture to Katie from Katie. So that's not bad. Excellent. Well, I believe that um, the next episode, The Eleventh Hour, is one of Katie's favourites. Let me introduce it through what TARDISFANDOM.com says, and then we'll have a wider discussion. The Eleventh Hour was the first episode of Series 5 of Doctor Who. It was written by Stephen Moffat, directed by Adam Smith, and introduced Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor, Karen Gillan as the new companion, Amy Pond, and Arthur Darville as recurring character and future companion, Rory Williams. It further debuted the presence of cracks in the universe and sparked the beginning of a critical plot thread that trailed deep into the 11th Doctor's tenure with three words, silence will fall. This was compounded by the mention of a Pandorica, which was fated to open. Though not the first episode of the 2010 series filmed, it was the public's first full exposure to a new production ethos as shaped by new executive producers Moffat, Pierce Wenger and Beth Willis. It was also the public's first exposure to director Adam Smith's work on a Doctor Who universe programme. A new title sequence by Framestore debuted with this episode, along with yet another Murray Gold theme arrangement. The theme change, however, garnered significant public backlash in the United Kingdom, forcing the Doctor Who production team to respond to criticism in a long segment on the public comment programme, Points of View. The episode was extensively previewed before broadcast, 
with theatrical screenings in several British cities as part of a promotional tour at the end of March 2010 and on the east and west coasts of the United States. The first minute of the episode was released as a special preview on the digital red button service a week before its first BBC One broadcast. Right, Katie, what do you think of The Eleventh Hour? Well, we watched it the other night, didn't we? Yeah, we did. You've, you've watched it quite a lot over the years, so what is it you like most about it? I don't know, I just think it's like really a really interesting episode. It's really well put together. I just really enjoy like all the different parts of it, how this alien can just disguise itself as loads of different people, loads of different things. I just think it's very interesting. Did you like the theme music? Oh, yes. Oh, dear. Well, we can't have everything. I, I don't but mind it. I quite like the. I quite, I like, quite like it. Ramping up at the start, I couldn't. I really couldn't understand what the fuss was. Doctor Who goes disco. <laughs> no, that's the I mankind thought, version from the seventies. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought the title sequence was pretty poor, but I liked the music. I just thought clouds. Nah, it no, could be anywhere. Like whereas I think I prefer the clouds to the clocks. Well, I quite like the clocks. Yeah, I thought the clocks were okay, but I prefer the clouds. I think. I mean, something that's quite clear is that there's sort of this episode is very much the same but different in a lot of ways. Katie, what do you think? Uh, well, the episode starts with a view of Earth from space, like the ninth and tenth Doctor stories. Do you think it was deliberate? I think yeah. so. I think yeah. the fact we're getting, you know, the crash, you know, the crash zoom that we start in Rose and Christmas Invasion uh, into Rose's alarm clock, and we're getting something a similar directorial technique. And storytelling technique and a shorthand to show, yeah, it's the same show. And what do you think of Matt Smith as a doctor, Katie? I think he plays it very well. It's very good, very nice. Very do you prefer good. him to David Tennant? I think I might do, yeah. <laughs> I think you've always quite liked his hair. Yeah. He's got excellent hair. I've always been jealous of his hair. Yeah, me too. I think um, the story works in so many ways because it, it makes... Well, it's a new beginning and it is familiar. We've got the introduction of Little Amelia Pond and I think that was something Katie was for when this first went out and that was something she could identify with, the fact there was a, a younger character. I mean, yeah. How do you still feel about her now with Little Amy? I'm not sure. I mean, I really like the fact that they did include a part where it shows when she's younger and older. I think that was a like, really good part of it as well. I, I, I think, think it's, it's a superb episode i mean the writing is spot on i was very encouraged because a lot of people well rusty davis had left after four years and a lot of people were five years and a lot of people were a bit nervous about stephen taking over and i i thought it, it bode well because it was so well written does matt smith feel like a, the doctor straight away oh yes i think that's a good so. question yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's it's interesting. He was he was the youngest person to have been cast as the Doctor, and a lot of people. I mean, I remember when Tom Baker was cast. I remember the announcement that Tom Baker was going to be the Doctor, and uh, my older brother saying, "No, he's too young," um, <laughs> because you know because he was much younger than his three predecessors. Um, and this, and I remember thinking the same when Peter Davison was cast. There was even more objection to Matt Smith because he was so young, and. Yeah. And then you just have to remember what Stephen Moffat said about why he was cast after his audition. He just came across as both a young and an old man at the same time, which is what you want the Doctor yeah. to be. I, I he is he remains my favourite of all the Doctors from the the new series. I just yeah. think he is utterly yeah. superb in the he's, role. He's, 
he's my favourite of the modern doctors too. And I think he hit, he hits he hits the ground running, but I think it takes him a little while to kind of the characterisation that it, that played out in the long term isn't isn't really sort of established till till um till Amy's choice and and, and Gareth Roberts um excellent episode of course the the lodger which really gets that slightly odd quality. I think at first Matt plays the doctor. He's almost a little he's he's still quite heroic and quite straightforward. Maybe still quite similar to to what David Tennant was doing. But, yeah, you know, I think that's was, quite deliberate. Yeah, and you think how popular Tennant was. Yeah, the fact that they're sort of they're carrying on. I mean, I think it's obviously a deliberate ploy, keeping him pretty much in Tennant's costume for ninety percent of the episode, yeah. so you can identify and think, "Yep, this is still the same guy." Yeah, because of course we're in different clothes, yeah, but it's still very David much Tennant, the same same character. David Tennant's Doctor was so huge. Let's not forget that this was this was a big gamble because you know the tenth you know, Eccleson had done really well but Tennant took it to you know to the next level. So there was there was a real sort of doubt, not doubt, but there was there was trepidation that that would would Matt be successful. And for me it was it was almost straight away. What's the line? Um twenty minutes to save the world and all I've got is a post office and it's shut. That was when I was like, right, yes. here he is, you know, I'm I'm I like this guy. I was it took me a while to get used to David Tennant, but with Matt I, I was I was on side with him almost straight away. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think even the simple things, as you've got, um, you know, the identifiers. The, the story starts over London, which is obviously where Russell T based most of his stories. Yes. And then you've got the TARDIS as it's them um, recovering from the damage, just blows itself away into Ledworth. So it's sort of it's heralding sort of we're moving away from London, we're into something new. So it's I think there's a lot of clever symbolism there from Stephen in that. I think it's very very yeah, smart writing. Yeah. The fact I mean, that it takes us to a, a familiar setting like the countryside. So again. It's in a it's in a local village, local town, something we can all identify with. But let's um, talk about Caitlin Blackwood. Isn't she just superb and absolutely adorable as little Amelia? Yeah, she is brilliant. I think she's excellent. But my, my my trouble with it was that it was it was a you know, and I, I, this is something I'll end up seeing a lot, and I can only apologise in advance. But it was similar to something that Moffat had done already. It was similar to the girl in the fireplace when you met a character as a child, then again as an adult. And he would do it again in, with Clara when the Doctor saw her as a little girl, saw her as an adult. Um, but Kate, but that, none of that takes away from Caitlin. She's phenomenal. I think in some cases, some, some, she's actually better than Karen Gillan. Oh, controversial. Oh. I, I, think, Karen um, Gillen. I think Katie Karen Gillan's was... terrific. But, you know, I think yeah. Caitlin is phenomenal. And, and, it's, and it's really good that they got an actor so good that he carries so much and, you know, you know, carries so much. And they got her back a few times, didn't they? Yes, yeah, they did. back in the season finale and the next season as well. Katie took a real shine to her as well, which I think is quite useful for a younger viewer, you know, to find there's somebody they can identify with straight away. Did you find that, Katie? Yeah, that's Short and sweet answer there. Can I, can I ask Katie, um, how often have you eaten custard with fish fingers? Never. Ah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's, Maybe separately would be nice, but not together, no. That's, that's what I think happen. that whole scene, food at the start, is great. I think it's sort of showing that the Doctor's still silly. Um, and it's, you know, it's that post-regeneration stuff, and I think it's really, really, really nicely done. The fact they're building up a bit of a dialogue between them and yeah. the banter. Um, well, let, let's talk about the rooftop sequence at the end, because I think it's one of the most beautiful scenes where the whole audience is once again very unsubtly reminded but brilliantly done reminded that this is the doctor you are not of this world no but i've put a lot of work into it Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. What do you think? Is this world important? Important? What's that mean, important? Six billion people live here. Is that important? And here's a better question. Is this world a threat to the Atraxi? Well, come on, you're monitoring the whole planet. Is this world a threat? No. Are the peoples of this world guilty of any crime by the laws of the Atraxi? No. OK. One more, just one. Is this world protected? Because you're not the first lot to have come here. Oh, there have been so many. And what you've got to ask is... What happened to them? I'm the doctor. Basically, run. I just, I felt like punching. I may actually literally have punched the air at that point. I just thought that was inspiring. I thought it was a fantastic end to our very first episode of A New Doctor. Yeah, I think yeah, it's, I, it's I so like well done. Lot, the yeah. fact that he's messing about with his costume, trying to get it right. Um, you know, trying on the different ties and things, and then there he does. David Tennant's gone, and here's a new man. He's got his shirt, his tie, his bow tie, and just definitely. So here we go. Indeed, he's arrived. And Katie's just pointed out. I don't know if you heard that. It said bow tie. Arkill. You are right. Bow ties Arkill. But I, th- I think it's it's so well done. It's very much it's building up to it. It's, it's the Doctor giving a lecture to some invading aliens. Uh, don't you come back, Earth is protected. And it's always a good excuse to get a few clips and flashbacks just to show it's the same thing. It's a new era, but we're moving forward. Once that new, once the new costume's complete, that's it, the new era begins properly. Wasn't that the same line that David Tennant used at the end of Christmas Invasion, where he warned the Sycorax Earth is protected? Yes. And again, it's a great, again, great. It's subtle continuity. Well, can I thank Katie for joining us on this uh, episode of Power of Three, which we will now revert back to Power of Three. So thanks very much, Katie. Keep watching. Thank you, Katie. Take care. And keep listening. Um, That's us for this episode. We will be back very soon with uh, another episode of vaguely connected adventures and other items from the Doctor Who universe. So keep following us on Twitter, uh, keep speaking to us on the Twitter feed and on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from the both of them and me as well also. Goodbye. Bye bye, Duggan.